Good morning, Tomoka Christian Church. How are you? It's good to see all of you here today. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are ready for Christmas? Okay, there's three of you. That's great. Love that. Hey, uh, how many of you are listening to Christmas music as you get ready for the season? How many of you started listening pre-Thanksgiving? How many of you have had threats from your spouse that if you didn't start later, you might not be able to? I don't know. So here's the deal. Uh, what I want to ask you about today is your Christmas shopping. How is that going? Are you ready? Most of you are waiting for the 24th. I mean, there's shipment problems. People can't get PlayStations or Xboxes or other things. I heard on the radio today that you can't get candy canes. They've only got 50% of what they had last year available. Can you believe it? Candy canes. And even though the music industry has really gone, you know, more digital, there is a uh, comeback for, for records, vinyls, right? Because they're just kind of... Um, just kind of a hip thing right now. I don't even know why I use that word because... But anyway, I did use that word. It's just kind of a revival for, for albums. Um, but they've been hit hard. I heard that uh, right now, uh, Otis Redding's records are just sitting on the dock of the bay. <laughs> you should pray for me, really. <laughs> okay, listen, today we have... Four biographies of Jesus. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what they are, we call them the Gospels because it, and that word just means good news. Uh, each of these are four histories of the life of Jesus. They are written by authors to a specific audience with a specific message. And sometimes you can look at those different messages and you kind of overlay them on top of each other and you get a much fuller picture, an event that takes place. Think about it this way. We call that the harmony of the gospels, the harmony of the good news. Any of you ever go to a 3D movie? Yes. Okay, my dad used to wear 3D glasses, I think, in the 50s or whatever. But um, you remember that they have two different color lenses. If you go to a 3D movie, they put two different images on the screen. If you close one eye, one of the lenses will look at one of the images. If you, if you close that eye, the other uh, eye will look through that lens at the other image. If you open both eyes, it puts both images together and you get a full picture of what the, the uh, movie makers wanted you to see. That picture just comes to life. That's what the harmony of the Gospels does for us. When you are able to put all four of them together, if they're talking about one event, you see a much fuller picture of what actually happened and you get a full view of the entire narrative. That's why we like to harmonize the Gospels. But sometimes it's not a harmony of the Gospels. Sometimes what we have is a continuation of a story. And it's important for us to look in depth at what is being written and what is being shared so that we can see... Uh, what the writers are trying to tell us. And sometimes we get the harmony confused with the continuation. So we have to be careful. And I think that that's what happens a lot of times with the Christmas story, with the narratives that Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2 and what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Hallmark hasn't really helped us a whole lot in that area. And I know that that's really devastating for some of you. But we're going to look at some Christmas cards in just a second. But how many of you have ever gotten a Christmas card from Hallmark or another, you know, lesser card maker? And um, it has a nativity picture on it. How many of you have ever gotten the nativity? Okay, I'm going to show you some pictures of the nativity. You tell me if you see anything wrong with it or tell the person next to you. Okay, let's look at the first one. Do you see anything wrong with this picture? 
Okay, share it with the person next to you so if you're right that you feel smart and if not, you're just like, well, I was just kind of egging you on to see if you had an answer. Okay, let's look at the next picture. Three wise guys. Sorry, guys, we're fresh out of PlayStations. Makes sense in our current situation. This is all we have left. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But here's how the Bible tells us the correct... uh, this is what the Bible tells us is the correct picture of Christmas. Yes. Mary and Joseph in a cave, which is often used for a stable in Bethlehem. And there are shepherds that are there. You see anybody who are missing? The wise guys. The wise guys aren't there yet. That's what Luke tells us, right? But Matthew tells us that the story in Matthew chapter 2, this is what we see. We see some wise men who are there with Jesus, who is most likely a toddler. Now that's hard for us to kind of uh, take in because we can't even begin to grasp that Hallmark wouldn't have the correct answers around the nativity. But friends, here's a story that Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. He says, Mary and Joseph travel 70 miles to Bethlehem. Joseph hasn't made reservations and so they have to sleep in a stable. Uh, He then tells us the story of the night that Jesus was born. Can you imagine through your mind's eye what that must have been like? The contractions begin. The water breaks. Joseph is anxious. Was there anyone to help? We We don't know. Any family that had gotten to Bethlehem before them? We don't know. Now, if you've ever had a child or multiple children, you know that the first child's labor usually is longer than those that come after it. Now, we like to think that Jesus was perfect, and so like after 15 minutes of labor, there he was, but that's not most likely how it happened. How many hours did Mary have to endure the contraction and the labor pains? In this little village of Bethlehem, the screams of the child birthing process could be heard throughout the entire little town. It was anything but a silent night. Finally, the little baby is born. There's nowhere to lay him except in a manger. And I think to myself, I know that Joseph was a carpenter, but did he come up with the idea of putting this little baby in the manger, a feeding trough for animals? Or had he seen other people do it in the past? And then we know that the shepherds show up to see this baby. That's how they experienced the first Christmas. Now, let's not forget that Mary and Joseph are first-time parents. Anybody ever been a first-time parent? You know that we parent differently with the first child than we do with the children who come later, right? When the first child is born, we wrap them in bubble wrap. When the other children arrive, we're driving our minivans down the road and we're looking in the rearview mirror and little Junior is uh, digging in the car seat and pulls out a french fry that we know, who knows how long it's been there and they begin to eat it and you're like, ah, it'll help their immune system. <laughs> but what about this child? By the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, they've most likely been into Bethlehem for up to two years. Maybe you're wondering why would they still be in Bethlehem after two years. But let me remind you that they went to Bethlehem for a government census. Need I say anything else? Have you ever seen governments work quickly and efficiently?
But here are some clues that lead us to believe that Jesus was a toddler by the time the wise men show up in Matthew chapter 2. Verse 11 of, of Matthew says, They entered the house and saw the child with the mother, Mary. So the question is, is where was Mary? Uh, where did she deliver Jesus? Do you remember? It says that they went to a stable barn place because... There was no lodging available for them. They used a manger to, to lay the baby Jesus in. Listen, if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you know that oftentimes shepherds would use caves to keep the, the livestock. And they would put a fence in front of the cave. It was, there's a lot of caves there and there was a natural way to keep animals. Because that was the only housing left. In Luke, the word we use for baby in the original Greek is translated by us as baby. It means fetus or, or baby. In Matthew, the word used for child means a young child. And so in verse 16, we're told that King Herod is going to want to kill all of the children, all the male um, children under the age of two. Why? Because the wise men first saw the star uh, two years earlier when they heard of the, the birth of, of Jesus, right? The star had been there for two years. And so they knew that a newborn king had been born. So what was like life for this little Jesus? Philippians tells us that though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. And so as a baby, he, he went through the process just like we do. He knew hunger. He had dirty diapers. He cried a lot. When he was born, believe it or not, he couldn't walk or talk. He couldn't take care of himself. Jesus literally put him, himself in the arms of a teenage girl who was a first-time mom. He gave up his power and his knowledge that he used to create the heavens and the earth and put them on the shelf to become a helpless baby. And friends, he grew up just like you and I did. He had the same struggles, the same challenges. And we read in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. So he didn't come to this earth with a baby having supernatural knowledge of, of mathematics and, and all that other stuff that you want to talk about. He grew, and as he grew, his wisdom grew and his understanding grew. But in Bethlehem, this child is going to face overwhelming odds. Let's stand as we read the first three verses of Matthew chapter 2 today. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this and was, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. You may be seated. Now here's the deal, friends. To understand this verse and what the scene that's being set up, you need to understand uh, a little bit about King Herod. Herod had re, uh, ruled in Palestine for about 40 years, and like many kings or dictators, he would do just about anything to hold on to his power. He was so protective of his position that after he took over the throne, he had 68 of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the ruling religious body of Israel, executed. He left two men alive. That means 68 of the most influential and leadership-oriented guys in the entire nation of Israel were killed. That way there would be no challenge to King Herod's reign. And during his, his bloody reign, 
He thought his two oldest sons were conspiring to overtake his throne. And so he had those two sons executed. And then he went to their mother, his favorite wife, Miriam, and believed that she was involved. And so even though she was his favorite of about 12 wives, he had her executed. But he didn't stop there. He had her brother, her uncle, and her mother all killed because he was concerned about his power. Augustus Caesar, who he had grown up with for several years, would later scoff, it was better to be Herod's sow than his son. Because since Herod was half Jew, he wouldn't eat pork, but he would have no problem killing anyone in his family if he thought that it meant a challenge to his power. And so now as we get to Matthew chapter 2, King Herod is ending the, the nearing death. He's probably suffering from some mental disorders. And the wise men come to the east looking for this newborn king. And they have really no idea who King Herod is or what he's done or what he thinks. And when the scripture says when King Herod heard about this, he was disturbed. You can understand why everyone else in Jerusalem would be disturbed as well. Now, there's no doubt what Herod plans to do. He plans to kill this child, this rival to his throne. Uh, we see the conversation he has with the wise men. He finds out when the star first appeared. It was two years earlier. And so he knows that he's looking for a child under the age of two, a male child under the age of two. He consults with his scholars and his counselors to find out where this baby is going to be born. And they tell him that this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem. And then he devises a wicked plan. He tells the wise men, look... I want to worship this newborn king too. You go find him, then you come back to tell me and we will be best friends and go and worship together. And so the wise men go on their journey. And we read in verses 10 through 11, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. I'm sure that this is one of the most significant moments in this young family's life. When Jesus was born, he was born in humble surroundings. He was born in a stable. And the baby was laid in a manger. And the only people to witness this birth that we know of for sure, I mean, maybe there are family members around or people came from the village to, to share in the joy of the birth of this child. But we knew that the animals were there and we know that shepherds showed up. And shepherds were on the bottom rung of the social structure in that culture. That's it. Baby was born in a barn. And the lowest of the lowest come to see this child. They'd heard from the angels when they were getting ready to have the child. But sometimes even God's promises ring hollow. We forget the promises that God has given us because we just get busy with life. And we don't see any momentum. We don't see any movement. And so we just kind of think, well... This is the life that we have been given. And now, wise men who obviously have lots of wealth and power and prestige, who have come from miles, maybe up to five months they traveled, five months to a year to get there to see this baby Jesus. 550 miles, most likely, on camelback. And it took them a long time to get over the hump. And now they're here. And they come into the house that this little poor carpenter family had been staying in. And when they see the child, they bow down and worship him. We read in verses 11 and 12. 
Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. We don't know how many wise men came, if it was three, if it was twelve, as is the Eastern tradition. If there was a, uh, an entourage of, of guys that had traveled together with their servants and other people who had come. But we know that they came in to worship the Christ child because God had told them of who this child would be, the newborn king. When the wise men leave, King Herod simmers with rage. And now you have the most powerful king in the region looking for a young family that was living in a small town just about eight miles away from Jerusalem. And he is going to send his soldiers and his army to wipe out this new child. Maybe he's going to kill the whole family. We don't know what his plan was when you look at it in the totality of what he was doing. You have a young, poor carpenter's family against the most powerful king in the region. Overwhelming odds that this family is going to survive. Yet against all odds, God prevails. Verse 13 says, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Against all odds, in the middle of the night, God sends an angel, his messenger, to warn Joseph, listen, danger is coming. You need to get out of there. God superseded the natural law of, uh, of humanity and said, I need my servant to understand this message so that the Christ child can continue to live. Listen, what... The enemy realized King Herod's thought was, if I can kill the child, then I can stop his kingdom from coming. But he was just being the puppet whose strings were pulled by the incarnate of evil, Satan, who knew that if he could stop Jesus' ministry early on by wiping him off the face of the earth, that he could stop Jesus from redeeming humanity. We see this again just as Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry when he goes into the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt him three times. You see, the whole purpose is if I can stop him from moving forward, then I can stop the redemption of humanity. If I can kill God's plan early on, I don't have to worry about uh, all those other things because Jesus is human, fully human, fully God. He struggles with the same things that we do. So he was going to tempt him with the same things he tempts you with and the same things he tempts me with. But Jesus continued on his mission because he was born for a purpose. Now God sends this angel. And against all odds, he tells Joseph, get out of Dodge or Bethlehem and go to Egypt away from the power of Herod. But friends, it's not going to be all candy canes and lollipops there. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how they get there. They've probably never been to Egypt before. They didn't have family there. How are they going to make an income? I mean, there are a lot of questions to be answered. And by the way, have you ever tried to travel with a toddler? I asked my doctor one time, I said, Doc, how do I lose weight without diet and exercise? Because that's my wife says, I'll do anything except diet and exercise to lose weight. And my doctor said, do you have a two-year-old? And I said, yeah, because we've had lots of kids and they're six, four, two, and now, you know, 12 weeks. He said, just do whatever your two-year-old does. I promise you, you'll lose weight. 
But friends, God is not surprised by anything. If there's nothing that you take from this message today, please take that. Write it down. Underline it. Send yourself a note. God is not surprised by anything. He's not surprised by the circumstances you're facing right now. He's not surprised by the challenges that you encounter. He's not surprised by the Goliaths that come into the valley. He's not surprised by the challenges financial, physically, relationally that you're dealing with today. God is not surprised by where you are. And God has already been working upstream and prepared you for this encounter, this battle that you're facing this season. And he's got you and he hasn't forgotten you. And he's taking you with him and he's walking beside you. Friends, God is not surprised by anything. He's not surprised by what you're facing today. So don't give up. Don't be in despair because he's been working upstream. How does a young, poor carpenter's family travel all the way from Bethlehem to Egypt? They don't have the resources. They don't have the money. They don't have the bank account. They don't have the experience. I'll tell you how. Gold frankincense, and myrrh. Do you think it's a coincidence that God leads three wise men who bring all kind of wealth to this two-year-old little boy on the eve of them have to flee Bethlehem? Two years at the birth of his son, he knew what Herod would do. He knew that the threats that were going to come against this little baby Jesus. <laughs> and two years earlier, he was sending the wise men on their way so that they could provide the means necessary for this little family to travel and live and survive because God is not surprised by anything. However, back in Jerusalem, Herod does what has become one of the saddest moments in the Christmas story. And friends, I know we don't often talk about this part of it because Christmas is supposed to be cheery. When you come into this room, you're supposed to wear red or green and little elves hats and be happy. And when people say, how are you doing? You say, hey, life is good. My marriage is falling apart. My kid's sick because of the pandemic and is, is dealing with stress and anxiety like never before. I have a sick parent. I just lost my job. But life is good because it's Christmas and it's filled with cheer and happiness. But in this moment, terrible tragedy occurs. In a rage, this wicked king sends out his soldiers to the little town of Bethlehem and has every male child two years and under slaughtered before their parents' eyes. Can you imagine your two-year-old, your 12-week-old being brutally killed by soldiers? And friends, I want to tell you that the birth of Jesus had not brought joy to this little town of Bethlehem, but deep grief. As Jeremiah had prophesied, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. I don't know where you are this Christmas season, 
I read a study this week that in 2021, what they have said is, is that there has been in, uh, a massive increase in depression and anxiety for Americans. 28% of Americans deal with depression or anxiety every day. Almost one-third of our culture is struggling. And maybe today you are struggling because of the pandemic or the rising cost of things and your dwindling bank accounts. Maybe you're alone. Maybe this Christmas season you're here away from family and you are either single or single again. And it's not where you want to be. And there's not a lot of joy to find in the season that celebrates happiness and family. You know, I think one of the groups that we need to reach out to, especially as a church right now, is our widow and widowers. Friends, there are people who have been 40 and 50 years with a spouse who have lost that spouse and have, and they're seeking direction. And the one place that should be there to help these widow and widowers is the church. And if you are not actively engaged, man, come on Tuesday mornings when we worship together. Find those widow and widowers. Find out who they are in our church and support them. Just like the single moms and single dads who are trying to raise kids and and maybe who are broken because their family is broken and they need somebody to step in and say, listen, we love you, you matter, and we want you to have a good Christmas because you may not be in a place to provide it for your kids, but we can. And friends, it's not just people in our church, but it's in our communities and in our country and around the world. The giving tree back there, you want to make a difference in the lives of people? Listen, there are, there's a tree back there with little, little uh, cards that you can take. And it will tell you how you can provide for something like animals or a meal or grain, whatever. There are over 3 billion people who've never heard the story of Jesus. And this ministry, the, the Giving Hope Tree, what they do is they, they uh, go to people who are indigenous to those countries, who grew up there, who know the language, who can go into con- to areas that would be otherwise aggressively against the gospel message, the good news message. And because they're bringing a gift or help for these communities, they're willing to listen about Jesus. You can be a part of that. You can spend $5, you can spend $150, or as much as you want by taking those tags, filling them out, and providing Christmas gifts for people that maybe don't have anything. There are families that are dealing with separation, with death, with heartache, with hardship. People who are struggling with health and in the hospital, affected by COVID or cancer or heart disease. And friends, we want to know the answer to questions. But we've been taught in churches as we've grown up that you don't ask questions in church. You just have faith. You just believe. You don't need to ask the tough questions. It's going to damage your faith. Don't do it. But friends, there's no better place to ask those questions than right here. And we may not be able to always give you the answer that is satisfactory to you in the moment, but I promise you we will journey with you as we seek out those answers together. Ask the questions, because there are questions in life that we just don't know. We struggle with, why did a tornado rip through the state of Kentucky and kill 77 people, 12 of them being children, and wipe out an entire community? We want to know why. Why would a loving God allow that to happen, especially during the Christmas season? We want to know questions like, why is there a 14-year-old kid from our youth group in the hospital today, dealing with, with severe cancer. 
That doesn't make sense. That's not the way that God should be operating. Why do we allow that? Why does God allow that to happen? And, and we want to know about why there's war and why there are wounded people and why there are people who feel like they gave so much and, and, and been given so much, so little in return that they've been forgotten. Their sacrifice has been forgotten. Why are there people around the world that are starving because of famines and lack of food? Why are people struggling in society? Why do we have problems in our marriages? Why do we have problems with our kids? Why do we have problems with our parents? Why do we have problems with our friends? Why can't we find a job that we just enjoy and get along with everybody? Why is there always conflict in our societies? And we want to know this Christmas season that brought joy to the world. Where is Jesus in the midst of my personal turmoil? And friends, here's the answer. A couple things. The first is, is that when sin entered the world, Romans tells us that the earth groaned because it was a shadow of what God intended it to be. And when sin entered the world, death entered the world. And every one of us who chose to sin separated ourselves from God and there was a lack of hope. And we live in that world today. We live in a world where all of us at some point have a death date, just like we had a birth date. But here's the thing. The reason that Jesus came is because he knew all of this. The reason that Jesus showed up as a baby, emptying himself of the power and knowledge of heaven, is because of these circumstances that we're talking about. He knew that people would physically die, but he was going to bring a message and a hope that would redeem humanity. He was going to take something that was broken and he was going to reshape it and reshift it and make it something beautiful again. He was going to take the broken picture, the stained glass picture that had been shattered and he was going to make a beautiful mosaic from the pieces of broken lives and to say, listen, this life is a gift and you've got a purpose and you've got to live. But here's the thing. This life is not all that there is. Someday you will graduate from this life to the next reality. Someday you're not going to have to worry about growing older anymore. Can I get an amen from that? Someday, listen, someday you are not going to have to deal with difficult relationships and not being with family at Christmas time and not having hope and feeling depressed and anxious. Someday you are going to be given a new body when you leave this reality and go to the next. It's something to look forward to. And God wants to redeem you. And he can only do that if you're willing to make him your, his, your Lord and Savior and to accept his free gift that he offers. He came to bring peace into the brokenness, to bring hope into the hopeless bring joy to the afflicted. He came to set the prisoners free and he came to heal those who are broken hearted. Isaiah 61. And then again in Matthew chapter 4. So I don't know where you are this Christmas morning, but I know this. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. I read this first when my grandma Hargrave was getting ready to die of cancer for the first time. In my, when I was in my 20s, even though I'd graduated from Bible college, I'd never read it that I remembered. We just did a whole series of it on Tuesday, and, and it's this verse. It says, Therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly you are wasting away, yet inwardly you are being renewed day by day. For your light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, do not keep your eyes set on the things that are seen, but rather on the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what that's telling us, friends, what that's telling us is that as we journey through life, our faith is strengthened because we know that we're not 
well, most of us, are not 20 anymore and, and still in great f- peak physical ability. We know that we begin to fall apart. And we know that the longer we live, the more difficult relationships become and more complex. We know those things. We also know that it is the blood of Jesus that's covered our sins so that we don't have to live with regret or shame for decisions we've made in the past. The longer you live, the more regrets you have of things you've said or done. And Jesus has wiped those things clean. You don't have to live in that place anymore. You have been set free, my friends. And Isaiah prophesied the coming of this Christ child 800 years before Jesus came because God is not surprised by anything. And in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world, God says, look, someday I'm going to redeem humanity through a Messiah. The very moment creation fell, God had a plan. And friends, I want to encourage you today, wherever you are, whatever you're journeying through, whatever your situation is, that Matthew begins his story to us by telling us that Mary will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so wherever you are today, wherever you're traveling, whatever you're going through, whatever challenges you're facing, you're not alone. You are not alone. God is right there with you. He is guiding you. He is protecting you. He is providing for you. He is walking with you. You are not alone. Because God is not surprised by anything. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And so all of us who struggle with mental or emotional situations right now, you can go to your counselor to find hope. He is the mighty God because there is no situation you encounter, no Goliath that stands against you, no wall that is before you that can stop you from connecting with the God who is an overcomer, who has always overcome and who has the power to defeat any enemy before you. He is the everlasting Father, so His promises are not for a season or a time period. They are forever, everlasting. And He is the Prince of Peace. And I think all of us could use a little more peace in our life during this season as we go to our Lord. Friends, do not be dismayed. Do not be sad. For the best is yet to come. I'm going to end just real quick with this, this point. Jesus will eventually leave, Nazareth, uh, leave Egypt and they'll go to Nazareth. And there he'll find relative peace. And that's where he'll grow up in Galilee. Now, his life was probably not perfect. I mean, he had siblings and you know what that means. Somebody else is always the baby. But we don't read of any more attacks on his life. We don't read any more of the challenges that he faced. When he's a teenager, we see him in his father's temple. His family didn't necessarily understand him or what his mission was. But he did because he was growing in wisdom and stature with both men and God. And today, the Savior that we celebrate is not because the world is perfect, 
but because of what he wants to do through us, what he wants to take away from us, and what he has promised to us. May the God of all hope walk with you during this Christmas season as he gives you his peace. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Today, Lord, I don't know what fears are in this room, what challenges are in this room, what heartache is in this room, but you do. I remember sitting in a church when I was about 24. Lord, I remember that I was brokenhearted and suicidal, and we went to a church for Thanksgiving, and the preacher said, there are some people who are not thankful in this room today because their life is a mess. And Lord, I remember crying tears uh, of relief, of hope, because we just acknowledged that we all have challenges. And I knew it was going to be okay. And so, God, I pray that if somebody needs to hear that message today, that they would grab hold of it. That they would know that even if life right now is hard, that that's not the end of their story. There's still more to be written. And that, God, that you can bring peace in the most chaos. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.